In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows, with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as we decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God I will seek your good. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers, the snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The 
the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blesses the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, 
we found it in the fields of Ja'ar. Let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place, and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Listening once again to these words, we can imagine standing at the base of the hillside below the city gate, with the dwelling place of God rising above us as a literal fortress as we prepare to ascend to the temple. And we may notice once more how the subjects of these hymns all vary. There's deliverance, prayer for help, prayer for peace, delight in God, delight in the unity of Israel, remembrance of God's faithfulness. But individually and as a whole, they present a picture of the people of God going up to meet him in the place that he has chosen. So we look to them to help us understand how we also may go about approaching God. First, we studied Psalm 124. This song reminded us to come to God remembering, looking back at the Ebenezer's of his past faithfulness and trusting him to be faithful in our lives going forward. Then we looked at Psalm 123. Here we saw the importance of coming to God with upturned eyes, a right perspective toward his nature and position in this situation, understanding that he is in relationship to us and to all of creation, offering reverence and recognition of our need for mercy. We immersed ourselves in Psalm 130 and learned to come to God seeking and expecting redemption. We saw that from ancient days the people of God have understood his consistent nature, that he is just, that we are guilty, and that he offers us redemption by his own power and through his own work. And last time we examined Psalm 125, we saw that the people of God come to God with unshaken trust, that God holds the patent on truth and righteousness and it has no need of innovation, that such a stance will not be popular and certainly won't be mainstream, that the world will not love us for trusting God and standing unmovable in the face of wickedness. 
Indeed, Jesus himself warned us that we would be hated if we followed him. This week I'd like to turn your attention to Psalm 130. 131, I'm sorry. A song of ascents of David. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Now, most of you know that I have two daughters, and my wife Stacy is about halfway done cooking our third child, name, etc., TBD. Um, Adelaide and Mabel, as I said, are sick today, so none of them are here to listen to me talk about them. But this image strikes kind of close to my heart, as you might imagine. Mabel, our younger, is just about exactly a year and a half. And so a couple of months ago, Stacy weaned her. So now when we lay her down to sleep, her favorite thing to do is to cuddle up with whoever's putting her down. And she wants to put both our heads on one pillow face to face. And she sighs and she yawns. Then she puts her hand on the side of your cheek and says, Dada. Then she sits off and gives kisses. She lays back down. She strokes her cheek. She says, I love you. She does that about ten more times. And then she falls asleep. I know, it makes me gooey inside too. It's a beautiful picture of the rest and comfort we can have in the arms of God. Like a weaned child with his mother, calmed and quieted. That's what I thought, too. Not to say that I was actually looking for an easy message to prepare this week, but I'll admit that as I read my Shirot Hamatlot in preparation for this sermon, and I came to Psalm 131, just maybe the thought crossed my mind. Ah, here's a nice, small psalm with a nice, quiet, comforting message. We all need a a little comfort and calm these days, right? Oh, the folly of youth. David, it seems, had other plans for me. Plans laid 3,000 years ago to lull me into this unsuspecting choice. This is the problem, or I should say the challenge with exegetical sermons, which is just a a fancy word for the kind of Bible study that I usually do, where we take a scripture and try to unpack it in hopes of understanding and applying its lessons to our lives. In other words, I choose the scripture and it chooses the topic. It's not the only way to study, or the best way necessarily, it's just the way we're doing this series. The trouble comes in this unpacking. I take a nice, quiet little poem about a baby, and I start to look at it a little closer, and that cute little blue police box suddenly turns into, turns out to have a swimming pool inside next to a million-volume library, and oh yeah, it travels in time and space. If you don't understand that reference, just ask the person next to you. (laughs) Just as an aside, I got my first clue about this when I started looking at my word studies. I chose ten words that I thought I needed to understand a little better to kind of get to grips with the poem. So it turns out of those ten, two occur only five times in all of Scripture. Three of them occur only two times, and the other four occur only once in all of Scripture. In other words... Almost half the words I wanted to understand only appear in these exact forms in this one psalm that we're looking at, out of all of scripture. So apparently the king, the poet king, had a vocabulary. But this is the beauty and the wonder of scripture, especially of scriptural poetry. It's like the sea. One may fairly quickly learn to navigate the surface with a degree of confidence, but the sea itself is not only at the surface, it is also the vast and silent deep places. To see those, you have to dive below the surface. And though mankind mastered the high seas centuries ago, 
There are to this moment depths our eyes have never seen and likely creatures we have not begun to imagine. So let's dive into our little song about a baby and see what deep places we can manage. As always, I'll begin by discussing the poetry of the song. These songs, you will remember, arise out of the poetic culture of Hebrew, which is part of what sets psalms apart from the other kinds of scripture. Much of the Western tradition um, relies on rhyme schemes and patterns of syllables and accents, but Hebrew poetry works with a different set of tools. Hebrew poetry deals mainly in imagery, metaphor, simile, and various kinds of repetition, including sometimes very complex interactions between words and thoughts and even sounds, as we've seen in our other psalms. Key words play a large part, and sometimes elaborate imagery. Parallelism is going to come into play today. It's a common structure in Hebrew literature. It's based on a kind of evolving repetition. Uh, repetition of words or ideas. Lines interact with each other by repeating sometimes only the sense of the line that went before and then adding something to it. Comparison and contrast play their part as well. The most important thing to look for when you read Hebrew poetry is this interaction. The Hebrew language lacks the strict subject-verb-object forms we find in English. The words and phrases instead interplay with each other. So keep that in mind as we look at this poem. Watch for the interactions. One element of Hebrew poetry that should be familiar to us is the stanza. If we look at our poem here, we can pretty quickly break it into three sections, one for each verse. But it's not the verses that tell us to break the stanza, it's the way the phrases hang together and interact with each other. Look how the thoughts divide themselves into sections. A song of a sense of David. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with matters, with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Broadly, we can call this form terraced parallelism, a kind of repetition where each line repeats the thought from the line before and then adds something to it. It works within each of our stanzas and also from stanza to stanza. If you like, we can conceive the whole poem like a pyramid, starting with the simplest idea at the top and then adding weight as it moves down the subsequent lines. Let's look at verse 1. A song of a sense of David. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Now with our minds tuned to see repetition, what do we see in every phrase of the stanza? We see not, nor, neither, nor. In Hebrew, it comes out even more clearly. It sounds like no, and no, and no. And adding in the first line of verse 2, surely not. This negation is actually the organizing element of the poem. It's the primary repetition. So let's see what David is negating. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Now some of you who remember the story of David may respond, Aha! Methinks his majesty doth protest too much. I seem to recall some rather prideful moments made by the second king of Israel. Bathsheba and her first husband might have something to say on that account. And then again, someone with a different bent of mind might take a slightly different approach. After all, he is the king of a country. Shouldn't he be concerning himself with great matters and profound things? Are we meant to kill our intellects and take everything on quote-unquote blind faith? 
I believe Ben had some thoughts on, or anyway, some questions on that subject a few weeks ago. But here is where those unusual words and word forms that I mentioned start to come into play. Let's look at that word haughty or proud. Not haughty is my heart. The word means literally high or lifted up, but it does carry with it that sense of arrogance in the translation. And of the five times it appears in this exact form, two of them stand out as illustrative. First in Ezekiel 28. Verses 1 and 2 say, The Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, Thus says the Lord, Because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are a man and not God, although you make your heart like the heart of God. Tom was mentioning this last week, I think, this impulse to consider oneself equal with God and stand in judgment of him or act in his stead. God responds in verse 9, Will you say, I am a God in the presence of your slayer, though you are a man and not God in the hands of those who wound you? So perhaps we're not speaking of a garden variety arrogance here. In Second Chronicles, we find another image. Second Chronicles 26:16. For a little background, Uzziah was the twelfth king of Judah, if you count Saul, David, and Solomon, who ruled over Judah and Israel. So obviously David was not alluding to this incident in his psalm. But the same sense of the word haughty is used here. So Uzziah was the twelfth king, and he... He became king at age 16. His father was one of the godly kings of Judah. He raised young Uzziah to also be a good king, and God blessed him. He conquered the enemies of Judah. The scripture says he had brilliant engineers who invented powerful war machines and great civil engineering projects. He was a roaring success as a king until we get to Second Chronicles 26.16. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly He was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you have no honor from the Lord your God. But Uzziah with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the altar of incense. Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And they hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out, because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord, And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. As you might or might not know, the temple built by Solomon in Jerusalem was divided into sections, and different people were allowed to enter the different sections. In in short, the innermost room was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, from Raiders of the Lost Ark. And uh, only the high priest could go there, and only once a year. And then outside of that was the holy place, which was reserved only for priests, um, which was the tribe of Aaron, as it said in the scripture. And they were set apart to God to serve in the temple, and they burnt the incense, and that's where the altar of incense was. Outside the holy place was the courtyard with sort of the big altar where the other tribes could come to present their offerings, and that included the king. But Uzziah thought he was bigger than all that. 
And like King Saul generations before him, Uzziah decided he could be a priest and a king. And he could go where only the priests were allowed to go. Interestingly enough, one of the results of being leprous was that Uzziah was ceremonially unclean, so after his little walk on the wild side, he was no longer allowed to go into the courtyard either. But, but you see, now we're starting to get the picture of the haughtiness that David is banishing from his heart. David understood as neither Uzziah the king nor the king of Tyre his own status relative to the status of God. It is the beginning of his thought. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Okay, so each phrase was supposed to build on the one before it, but that just looks like redundancy. Not so, for here we have a little bit of poetry that's invisible in English, but powerful in the original. First of all, this synonym for haughty is closely linked with idolatry. So we have an expansion of the thought. First, I do not put myself in your place, like the leader of Tyre. Second, I do not put other gods in your place. But perhaps more to the point, these two phrases use gender pairing. The word in the first phrase, which the NIV renders as proud, is a masculine word. The word in the second phrase, which the NIV renders as haughty, is a feminine word. They both mean lifted up, but one masculine, one feminine. We learned in another message that a Hebrew poet might use such a construction when he wanted to create a sense of completeness or extreme emphasis. And that's just what we have here. David wants a global or a universal emphasis. But even here, uh, even then he has more to add. Lord, my heart is not haughty, my eye, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. In a beautiful subtlety of poetry, the phrase concern myself might best be remender, rendered as wander around in. It carries a sense of making something a part of your life, as in Psalm 81.13. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. And the word for great things appears in in similar forms referring to the mighty works of God. Moses used it in describing the Exodus, Deuteronomy 10.21. And the phrase, things too powerful for me, might be better understood as wonders too profound for me to understand. So we find in this simple-seeming verse an expanding picture of the relationship between David and his God. David recognizes God's right to his position as object of worship, beyond the king himself or any idol. He gives ground before God's power as an actor and doer of great deeds, and before his unmatchable intellect to understand what we cannot hope to comprehend. We might remember here Dave's message on the role of wonder in God's communication with us, that he intentionally created us with the capacity to be amazed in order to communicate with us. Perhaps one of the things he intended to communicate was the difference between himself and us. So when do we get to the cuddling? In short, not yet. First we have to consider the first line in verse 2, which opens our second stanza. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. We look at the word surely. Once again, English misleads us. In Hebrew, it reads, surely not. And it certainly seems to reflect backward toward the previous stanza, as in, I don't think that I'm equal with God. I don't think an idol is either. I wouldn't try to match his power. I wouldn't imagine I could match his intellect. Surely not. This is the transition. It sets us up for the contrast that appears in the rest of stanza two. We won't see any more negatives. David has finished telling us what he isn't. 
or perhaps better, what he strives not to be. Now we get the ideal, I have calmed and quieted my soul. The word calmed or stilled might also be translated smoothed. It could be used to refer to leveling the surface of the ground. And it comes from the root word to avail. You know, like we availed over them in battle, a subduing by force. That's an interesting take on the idea of calm. And quieted fares in similar fashion. From the word to cease, it could easily be translated struck dumb. In Exodus 15, 15 through 16, we see the images as Israel conquers the promised land by the power of God. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom, I have, whom you have purchased. The, stream, the thing that struck me the most about this line was the active nature of it. Both words, calmed and quieted, appear in Psalm 131 in a form called perfect, which communicates uh, ongoing activity. I do this now, and I continue to do it. And the object of the activity is upon my soul. Some translations use self in place of soul, and rightly so. The Hebrew concept is kind of uh, nice. It's that which breathes. And in this form, it refers to both the material and the immaterial self, the part of us that breathes. So David says, He avails against himself and strikes himself dumb in the presence of God because he recognizes the vast difference between them in both status and essence. And so finally we come to the cuddling. But it is beginning to have a somewhat different flavor. At this point, David, as cuddly, so to speak, seems to be taking a much more active role than expected. And I hate to tell you, the next two lines continue along the same trend. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. To understand the simile of the weaned child with his mother, we must first understand what a weaned child is like. The word, um, oh, once again, David comes to the rescue with his amazing vocabulary. The word for a weaned child comes from a word meaning to deal fully and adequately with. So to put it more bluntly in English, the weaned child is one who has been dealt with. But it also uh, could be translated as ripened or bears a sense of completeness as of a stage that has been finished. When the child is weaned, she is mature, self-sufficient. Stacy sometimes says she is a grown-up baby. And yet, in many cases, the weaning process is not a placid one. The child longs for the comfort of suckling even when nutrition is no longer needed. The battle of wills ensues. The only way for the suckling child to become a weaned child is for the mother's will to prevail. It's a kind of discipline. The child cannot really understand, but must submit to the, both the greater knowledge and the greater material power of the mother. The child must learn to trust her love. But this is not a Santa Claus kind of love. Santa only comes once a year, and he's smart enough to come when the kitties are asleep. He never had to fend off the tantrums or the other determined advances of an unweaned child with her own ideas. We're talking about mother love, father love, love with teeth in it, ferocious love. This is love that comes with a little fear inside of it for the person being loved. Love with discipline. 
Love that says, eat your vegetables or no dessert, and even spare the rod and spoil the child. And the son who he loves, he chastens. It's not passive, sentimental, emotional, or tentative. This is Aslan's love, with claws raking the back of the heartless princess, who let her handmaiden take a beating in her place. Love that is not safe or tame, but it is good. And once the weaning process is achieved, the relationship has also subtly changed. Now the child is not single-minded in reaching for mama. She's, she's no longer focused simply on her own need for food, but rather on a deeper, less practical connection. So the picture we end up with is not the passive coddling in the arms of God that we might first have imagined. David, it seems, had more in mind than my sweet daughter patting my face and cooing, I love yous. Or perhaps I should say that he sees more in that moment than a heart-melting emotion. He sees a process, an interaction, choices made by the parent, choices made by the child. When we really get down to it, we're talking about submission. I know, I said a bad word. One of the most spiritually sensitive people that I know is not a believer, and she said to me one day, if I ever want to find my way to God, I will know the way, but I'm not ready to submit. She had it dead right. <clears throat> this is a key concept in the story of God and man. This process, this interaction, this choice on the part of the man or woman. Today's message should perhaps be subtitled, Coming to God with Submitted Selves. Many have said that the scriptures are a love letter written by God to us. I can't say that they are entirely wrong, but if it is a love letter, it is the most frank, filthy, unapologetic, unsentimental, body-gritty, real, raw, and unrelenting love letter ever penned. But perhaps a somewhat stronger metaphor rises from the images in this poem. The image immortalized in the now classic country ballad of the schoolboy passing a note to the schoolgirl. We all know what it said. Check, yes or no. But in the place of the traditional adolescent question, do you like me? The writer of our note has scrawled across 66 books and several millennia the question, will you submit to the love of Almighty God? This is the real question of salvation. We have imagined it to be, do you believe in God? But that's nonsense. Will you still say, I am God in the presence of your slayer? Jesus rather said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. As Damon has often reminded us, God is the first actor in all of our interactions. We have only to react, and no other choice is open to us. And having come to God seeking and expecting redemption, having submitted to his sacrifice and accepted his cleansing, will we now come to God having exerted our will upon our own selves? Will we come having received and accepted his discipline like a weaned child, like that child having matured beyond the petty demands of I need and I want and I deserve? Will we rather move into relationship with him of love and trust and adoration? Having passed through this understanding of the submission that is required of us, having understood how far above us he is, how great his love and sacrifice has been, how we are not equals to him, nor can we even conceive his being rightly, how he is the primary actor, as the mother is the primary actor in the life of her child and in the process of weaning him. Having confronted all of this, 
Will we submit to our part in this beautiful image that cannot be reached by any other process? Only when we have done all these things will we truly be able to obey with Israel the command in the final stanza of Psalm 131. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the security that we can find in seeing clearly that you are not like us. Your thoughts are not like our thoughts, nor your ways our ways. Teach us not to be haughty in our eyes and hearts, not to concern ourselves with the great deeds and profound wonders that are your purview alone. Teach us to avail against our bodies and strike ourselves dumb in order to better commune with you. Make us like weaned children, ripened, matured, submitting our souls to your will and placing our hope in you both now and forevermore. Amen.